You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. God, uh, we come to you yet again before your word, um, needing to be changed by it. Right now, I really feel my uh, need for that. Walking through this psalm and um, walking through this week uh, has really been a challenge to me um, to even ask myself, do I really believe these things? And am I ready to do the hard work to put it into practice? So God, I just ask that you would help me even in this moment, Spirit, I really lean on you um, for the transformation that is needed, for the humility that is needed, uh, for the contrite uh, spirit that's needed, and ask that you would just continue to change me. Um, And God, I pray for all the people uh, that we would be able to walk in that together, that transformation would come to uh, each person who is Um, participating in this reflection on Psalm 32 um, and that you would, Lord, lead us to a place where it just ripples out before uh, the world around us and we see many people changed by your everlasting love. We ask for your grace in this way and just ask that you would go before us and we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the good news that even in a time like I feel right now where I need uh, this to be what my life is marked like and I feel distant from it, that we can cling to the grace that has been given to us um, that gives us an assurance, not necessarily the performance that we do. So, Lord, be gracious and get glory for yourself in this time. Amen. Well, the reality is... This psalm that we're going to walk through reminded me of something this week and the week that we walked through, the events that have happened and the ways in which we even find uh, ourselves looking at just a changing world has brought me to a place where I'm reminded of the reality that everybody, every man, boy, um, woman and girl seek after and want happiness. The one thing that every single person wants on this side of eternity and even for all of eternity is happiness. Everybody wants to be happy. You know, when you think about the Declaration of Independence, it was uh, marked by that statement that we hold these truths to be self-evident. And going through saying that every person, all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator, created by the God and given this inherent dignity that gave us certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. That the American declaration of independence that was said to ascribe the right dignity to every person, that even things that we still see people fighting for, my people specifically working through these things and saying, we're still not free. We're still not 
getting the justice that uh, every person ought to have is characterized by not just liberty and not just life, but a pursuit, a seeking of, and a chasing after happiness. Well, what is happiness? I think back to 2005 when I watched an interview with Mariah Carey and she's at the height of her career. In a lot of ways, people would say Mariah Carey is still at the height of her career, but I know that she's definitely not where she was at that time. And in having moved through the ranks, they talked to her about this um, desire that she had where when she first came into the industry, she said, I want to be rich, I want to be famous, and I want to be able to have success. And they say, you found all those things. What would you want now? You've got this many records on the pop charts and you got this many hundreds of millions of dollars. What do you want now? And she sat back with tears in her eyes and she said to be happy. Elvis Presley, six weeks before he died, had an interview. And in that interview, this is what they said. Elvis, when you first started playing music, you said you wanted to be rich and you said you wanted to be happy. Are you happy now? And Elvis Presley looked back at his interviewer and said, I'm lonely as hell. Speaking of lonely, Joe Theismann, you know who Joe Theismann is when he was talking about or explaining to his soon to be second ex-wife, he said, the reason I'm leaving you is because God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. Everybody pursues happiness and we look for it in all these interesting ways. We look everywhere else. We can go on and on and on. But what do we learn other than that every single person wants to be happy and we're all looking for it in things that can't even give it to us? It doesn't matter if you're at the top of the food chain or if you're at the end of your life. You'll find that if you don't look for happiness in the right place, you will not find it. Money can't buy it. Success does not provide it. Being a celebrity or having uh, maybe all of the pleasures that this world can offer to us, it will not give it to us. We don't believe, I don't think, that uh, happiness that the Bible talks about is the happiness that we need and especially not the place in which it comes from. The Bible tells us that a place of brokenness and a place of contrition, which really just means the state of feeling remorse, that that is the place where true happiness is found. That is what we must wrestle with, even as we think about who we are as the church in America and the church that has been called into a divided and a disoriented and a very easily distracted culture in America that tells you you can find happiness everywhere else except for in God. America needs happiness based on what the Bible says. And in a lot of ways, that means America needs a revival. America needs to be resurrected, to be raised from the place that we're in today. And friends, the church is where that will start. It's going to start in the church. It won't happen through politics. It won't happen through progress in social justice. It won't even happen because we begin a new evangelism strategy. All those things may be used by God and they may be well and they may be good as much as we love some of them. But the truth of the matter is, is that as much as God may use those, I'm convinced that he will not use them to bring revival to the world in the way that we need it. Revival is going to come to our nation when we come to our knees. 
And that's what God is calling us to today. I want us to think about this. Think about second Chronicles seven and 14. It says, if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear or heal their land. I want us to focus in there on what I think God means by humble themselves. And a little bit about what he means on seeking his face. This is an invitation to us and it is absolutely connected to our happiness as we'll find in our text. We desperately need humility, which is connected to our happiness. And we desperately need that as a culture. And it starts in the church. We desperately need to be revived. I need it. I need it right now. You need it. Our church needs it. Our city needs it. Our state needs it. Our nation needs it. Our world needs it. We'll be in Psalm chapter 32. I'm going to read at least just let me read the first two verses for us and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Psalm chapter 32 begins this way. It says a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 32 for many years has been considered to be a revival hymn. This is a place where we find David. He's speaking about his own personal experience. He also has some prophecy where the word of the Lord came to him. He speaks on behalf of Yahweh. And then he just has these declarations of truth. That should lead us to rejoicing. But Psalm 32 shows us the heart attitudes that accompany the revival that we need. And that is primarily happiness. Just doing a little bit of homework as you begin in Psalm 32, you want to see something about its arrangement, this poetic arrangement. You know, in in English, there's a way that we put together poems. And what we really love about poetry is is what I've always loved since a kid. Everybody knows that I'm a hip hop head. And so I've always liked what we call bars, right? It's just a person who is just good at pulling together rhymes. And it's not just like cat in the hat or mouse in the house kind of bars, right? It's like people who can pull together a multi-syllabic rhyme rhythm and rhyme scheme. And, and, and pull things like this together. This is a, a guy I know who uh, raps Christian hip hop. He said, Christ is the solution. It's nice to know the truth when strife is no illusion and his life is so confusing. It's like rhyming on every single syllable. That's what makes it beautiful for us when we think about poetry in English. But in Hebrew, it's different. They use more of a, a, a parallel. Parallelism is called Hebrew parallelism. The, the, the emphasizing of something in Hebrew poetry comes by repetition, not just by rhyming. And so in, first, in verses 1 and 2 and in all through this psalm, that's actually what we see that David is using. He uses repetition to drive home a point, and he does it from various angles. It's like showing you the same thing from different sides in order to help you to see. Just like when you look at a diamond or another uh, a beautiful jewel, you kind of get to understand more about it by turning it around and seeing it from various angles. Well, David penned Psalm 32 in some ways. He started at the end. Verses one and two could be the ending. 
it really mirrors even where he ends. But we'll focus on verses one and two. I just wanted you to see how David emphasizes his point to us in four different ways and gives us two parallels. He gives us two parallels. Number one and number four go together in these sentences, and number two and number three go together. So essentially, he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and in whose spirit there's no deceit. And then he comes over and he says, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. What he's doing is he's uh, giving us a parallel that we even use in English. Let me see if I can try it out for you just a little bit. If I told you about what my week was like, one of the things I'd share with you is I would say, hey, you know what? It took us all day to put the trampoline back together. We got halfway through it and we realized we can't even reattach the net uh, to the poles without detaching it from the mat. So we had to cut all of the cords and then start over. We were out there for hours. What I basically just did was I connected the beginning with the end, right? It took us all day. We were out there for hours. We could not put it together because it needed to be detached. So we had to cut. And so this is the way that this psalm is uh, put together for us, especially in verses one and two. And, and what I want us to see in here is that David is driving home a point about what our happiness is and how we're going to get that. Let's begin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. I keep talking about happiness because that's what blessing is. That's what that word blessed or blessed really means. The person who has their sins forgiven is one who is happy. That is the person who is full of joy, who has much to rejoice about. That person is blessed. He starts and he speaks about transgression. This is the first angle. He says that his transgression is forgiven. You know, transgression is like, I want to rule and I want to do my own thing. That's, that's revolt. That's knowing that there are boundaries. That's knowing that there is a place in which, uh, or a way in which we ought to live, but saying, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with that, especially not with that God. If God tells me that there's a way to live, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to do my own thing. It's revolting against and rejecting the standard that is put before us. Friends, as I was reading through this and considering this this week, I came to multiple times where I could see in my own life in my own household, in my own marriage, where the truth of the matter is, is that I'm thinking way more about how I rule, about what I want to do, about what I think ought to happen, as opposed to considering that I'm a man under submission and a man who has been given clear and, and very uh, present instruction for how I ought to live and how I ought to dwell with my wife in an understanding way, how I ought to be gentle. And then, but, but time and time again, it's easy for me to Respond quickly, be harsh, get angry and upset, not be quick to forgive. And so I just have been crushed by the weight of this psalm this week to say that's exactly who we are. And if I want to call my church to be a praying people, to be those who would be quick to say, I'm not going to revolt against God. I'm not going to be the person who would say that I, I live in however I want to. And, and I just am the person who transgresses every law that is out there, every boundary I speed right on through it, if I want to call others to that, 
It's time for judgment not to just start at the, uh, at the household of God, but in my household. And so I, I find myself in a place where I, I just want to say, like, if we want to see revival come, friends, we've got to be the people who would say, I acknowledge that I'm a transgressor. Have you acknowledged your transgressions this week? Have you considered the fact that day in and day out, there are things that you know ought to be done and you don't do them, things that you know you ought not to do and you still run right along into them because you're rejecting God's rule? That's transgressing. He goes on and he says, whose sin is covered. So now he's, he's talking about the same thing, but he spins it around and he calls it sin. <laughs> and he just, you, we talk about sin all the time. Sin is just literally, it's, you know, you throw in a dart right at the bullseye, but you keep missing the mark. There's a, there's a point where it's supposed to land right there and it keeps falling short. It hits the board and it falls down or it gets into one of the outer concentric circles, but you're just not hitting the mark. You're not getting it right on point. That's what sin is. And in the same way, just giving you more of my own heart. I know what to do. I know where it ought to go. And each time I miss the mark. Have you felt that? Have you considered the fact that God has actually called us to a standard through his law, not just through his law, but through the life of Christ? He's even given us, as we just talked about toward the end of Colossians, the ways in which we ought to live, the way that the household should be arranged, the ways in which uh, relationships ought to go inside the church. He's even talked to us about how we ought to engage with outsiders. And now think about how you, you know, as Sean walked through what it should be like as we are thinking about how to engage on Facebook and how arguments are won or not won, then ask yourself, what has my Facebook engagement been like this week? How have I responded to people as they have maybe disagreed with me and said things that I thought were deplorable, but how did I respond to them and then maybe even toward others? Or maybe when you think about missing the mark, you don't think about Facebook because you're not on social media, but you know that there is a, a place in which God has called you, an attitude you're supposed to have, an action you're supposed to take, and instead you Go for it and you just keep missing the mark. This is what David's speaking about. So as he, as he talks about our sin, he starts by saying it's transgression. Now he just flat out calls it sin. And then he moves on from there and he goes and he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now we're looking at it from a third space. You think about iniquity, crossing over the line, soiling something. Not, 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 uh, not just not missing the mark, but like literally there is evil, there is wickedness, there is a perversion is a good way to understand that. That there is, uh, there, there's, there's a way that we know it ought to go and, and instead of me going directly at it and finding myself at rest in uh, the boundaries that have been set for me, I am a kind of person who would just say, well... What if it was just this way? I don't really like that about it. And so I twist it in order to fit what I want it to be. We've gone through three of these and it don't sound real happy. <laughs> it doesn't sound like what I'm talking about is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But friends, look around you. Not many people are enjoying life, li liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
Even those who believe that we are, even those who, of us who may rise to some kind of a place of prominence or prosperity, what do we find that we get to that place and we still feel like I'm empty, I'm lonely, I'm not happy, I don't have joy, it's not much to rejoice over. As a culture, as the church, we have found ourselves in a place where we're divided, we're in a place where evil seems to prevail, and there's hopelessness. I know it's hopelessness because my phone and my inbox on my email and all my direct messages are so full of people who can cross T's with theology and dot I's with various things as it pertains to the Christian life. But then on these issues that we're facing in our day, how to face pandemic, how to face a prejudice, everybody's saying, how do I even think about this? What should I even do? Well, what can I read? Where can I go? What would you say? We're lost. And uh, to make it to make matters worse, if and when you find an answer to how we ought to respond, say, to the social justices, social injustice in our culture and in our day. You know what, friends? A lot of people have taken that and twisted it toward their own desire. They have perverted it toward their own way. And so now you can talk to two professing Christians who would be diametrically opposed in not just their philosophy, but literally what they think about God. Their theology clashes with one another on these issues. That's where we find ourselves, friends. And David's talking about happiness because he does get to what we will get to, and you've already seen it in the reading, but the reality is, is he's saying, these are the things that mark the human race, and these are the things that we need to be free from, and if we're going to be happy, it's not because we're going to go on sinning. Sin breeds sorrow, but David wants us to understand that happiness comes from holiness, that we would be like God, and that we would submit ourselves to him. The last thing he says there in this first couple of verses is just, and he says, and so he's talking about blessed is the man who, right? And he says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so he's talked about transgression. He's talked about it as sin. He's talked about it as iniquity. And now he talks about it as deception. The worst thing we could ever be is self-deceived in whose spirit there is no deceit. When you find yourself as a, a person who might tell a white lie here and there, who might even deceive yourself to think, you know what, I can keep going in this direction and do whatever I want to do, or I can deceive another person in order to get over on them. All those things are uh, the, 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 the telltale signs of our darkened and deceived hearts. Hearts that we cannot trust. Follow your heart is not good advice when you realize that your inner spirit, as he calls it here, just talking about your inner man, the person that is immaterial, but where all of your emotions come from, on the inside of you, there sits deception. And that's broad and global and, I mean, far-reaching. How do I know it's far-reaching? Well, I thought about David this week in Psalm 51. If you think about David in Psalm 51, he's confessing and he's asking for a clean heart and he's asking that God would change him from the inside out. But there's a certain things that he says that, uh, you know, speaks to the fact that, hey, it's not just him. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David believed that we're all born in sin that we're born in iniquity. 
That it's not just what we do when we become of age, but it's who we are because Adam sinned and that spread to all men. And so when David here talks about the person in whom there's no deceit and the person whose uh, iniquity is not counted against him, the person whose sin is covered or the person whose transgression is forgiven. He is saying that this is something that ought to be the priority of every man, woman, boy, and girl. Later in the chapter, he actually just says it in verse six. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Speaking to the Lord, he's saying, let every single person who would be the one who's marked by what God wants from a people and from a person, let them pray to you and seek you while you may be found. And friends, that, 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 that struck a chord with me because it made me realize that this week, this week and this year and this month and all these, it's not promised to us and there will come an end to it. And so if today my eyes are open to these things, I must repent today. I need to turn away from these things today. I need to seek God for this kind of forgiveness and blessing and happiness today, not putting it off for tomorrow. Don't put off for tomorrow what can be done today. As I read through this, I said to myself, it's interesting. David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The man who the Lord doesn't count his iniquity over. And then he turns over and he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And so before he could even say, again, he started at the end. The reality is, is that if, if we talk about his personal experience that comes out of verse number five, what he first says is, I made up my mind that I was not going to be a person who says, no, I don't have sin. That's everybody else. I acknowledged my sin. I see myself and my sinful state, not like, oh, everybody does that. No, I am falling short. I am missing the mark. He says, I acknowledged it to you. And then he says, and I did not cover my iniquity, right? So he's saying, I didn't hide it. I didn't try to make it hush hush. I didn't try to put it away and say, or, or, or say, you know, that that's not a part of me. He said, I didn't cover over the ways in which I pervert things and try and change things for my own benefit. But instead I said, I will confess my transgressions. He said, I'll confess my transgressions the things that I do and the way in which I try to rule my own life, the fact that I would be led into speaking as David, a place of murder and adultery based on laziness and, and lethargy, just being a person who just says, I'm just going to lay down and I'm just going to enjoy this and I'm not going out to war. And then he ends up going out and takes another man's wife and takes that man's life because he does. He said, I'm not going, I'm not going to cover that up. I'm going to, I'm going to confess it. I thought it was interesting, the, the parallelism that even stands there in a, in a different manner, right? He's saying, I didn't cover it, but he's saying a person whose sin is covered is the one who's happy. And so there's this idea that if we confess our sin, then God covers it. But if we cover our sin, then we get condemned by it because we are saying we're going to deal with it on ourselves. We, I don't want that weight on myself, friends. You don't want that weight on yourself. When I look out and I see that we have... Uh, a lost and a dying world that we say we want to reach, but yet we as a church are those who would justify our 
sinful ways, justify division, justify, um, uh, you know, the way in which we, we spew, I would say, divisive and, and hate-filled speech toward each other online, just, what, it's just because it's a tweet or a text or just because it's something that's done on social media. The fact that we do that is evidence of the reality that we need revival. We need revival, and it's only going to come because our hearts are contrite, that our hearts are changed. We're not those who would cover our own sin. We're not those who would deny our sin. We're those who would confess it and allow God to cover it. When we confess our sins, then he covers them. When I... Look at the beauty of this song. In considering this psalm, I'm struck by the reality that he's telling us exactly how we can get to what we all desire. We can all have happiness if we seek for it in the way in which God has put it together for us and if we seek for it in God himself. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven could be read this way happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven happy is the one whose sin is covered happy is the man against whom the lord counts no iniquity and happy is the one in whom there uh, in whose spirit there is no deceit you're going to be happy when you're truthful not not deceiving yourself or not even putting away and trying to uh, discredit your sin but acknowledging that and coming to god with it and confessing it to him and enjoying the forgiveness, right? Forgiveness means that God takes it out of the way. It's like it literally is something that's just pulled out of the way. It's not, it doesn't, it's not something that sits with you, but God doesn't see it in, uh, in that which would condemn you anymore. The Bible tells us that he separates us from our, our sin as far as the east is from the west. I feel like the east and the west, I mean, they're so far apart. They just never meet. When does the east begin and when does the west begin? They just don't. It, it doesn't happen. Forgiveness is something that we get from God because he takes our sin away from us. Happy is the person who God takes their sin away from them. Their transgression is forgiven. Happy is the man whose sin is covered. So uh, as opposed to being the person who would say, I'm going to cover this up and I'm not going to tell the truth about it. I mean, I'm going to try and act as if it didn't happen. No, when I expose it and I confess it, it says that God covers over it. That has to do with this idea of atonement. Atonement is that God doesn't just say, oh, well, I'm going to excuse it and just let you go on and do your thing. He says, no, justice must be served. Justice must be served. And so I'm going to pay the penalty for it to atone for that sin. Happy. I'm happy. This week as I'm sinning, and knowing that I need God's grace for uh, being short with my wife or being uh, in, you know, impatient with my family, I'm happy to see that God has actually covered over that. And how did he cover over it? Other than that he sent his son to the earth to die in my place as a substitutionary atonement, as a coverer in my place. That's good news. That's good news. And that's not where the good news starts. It says, happy is the man who, in whom uh, the Lord does not count his iniquity. 
And so when you talk about counting something, that's a reckoning, right? If, if you come and you have this much and I need to count it out for you and say that goes to your account, that's what you have. I'm going to reckon that as yours. Happy is the man who God sees. You got a whole heck of a lot of iniquity. You always try and do your own thing or you always try to pervert things into your own way, but God doesn't count that against you. That's what it means to be happy. That's what our world needs. We don't need riches. We need righteousness, right? We don't need finances. We need faith. All these things actually come to us by faith. They come to us by faith. You know how I know they come to us by faith? Because I was reading also in Romans chapter four, and it was interesting to me that this came out and we just talked about Abraham, father Abraham. We talked about him as the father of faith and the father of many nations. But you know, in Romans chapter three, we find that righteousness, the righteousness of God only comes through faith. He says that it comes to everybody. He says there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when he said all, he's talking about all of humanity. Uh, just above that, he actually said that by, by the works of the law shall no flesh or no human being, nobody in the one human race will ever be justified by their righteousness or by the law. So he's talking about this global need and this global provision of faith that God reckons as righteousness and he turns over into chapter four and listen to what he says, friends. Romans chapter four and verse three. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, mind you, in the psalm, we, we see happy is the person whose iniquity is not accounted against him by God. But here we find that, that God actually counted Abraham's belief as his righteousness. That's faith. His belief is his faith. It's not anything that he did. It says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you do something and you work, the wages of sin is death. If you do, then you get paid. If you do, then you get paid. There's a wage, right? So he's drawing a distinction. To the one who works, his wages are not counted. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Counted as righteousness, reckoned, justified. That's all the same terminology. So if you want happiness, if our world need, needs happiness, it's going to become that we're truthful about our neediness. We're the kinds of people who should be most pitied if we would say, I have no sin, I have not sinned, and I don't have need for God. But on, on, on the flip side, we are those who can enjoy all the blessings of happiness, and we can enjoy all the righteousness of Christ that we didn't do we didn't work for on our own if we can be honest about that and guess what God does he counts Christ's life as mine and he counts my life not against me that's what our world needs that's what I need that's what I need now that's what we all need the reason why this was so beautiful friends is that he didn't stop there in Romans chapter 4 if you're still there he said unto the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, which is God and only God, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. And here's where it gets good. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David was writing Psalms 
years and years and years before Christ even came to earth. Paul came and he's writing this years and years and years after Christ has died, been buried, resurrected and ascended to heaven. And we see that God is telling us the story of redemption has always been about faith and it's always been about for everybody. It's always been about God's children who believe in him and who will have their sin dealt with at the cross and not in any form of condemnation. That's what he goes on and says. Therefore, anybody who's in Christ, there's no condemnation for him. That's Romans 8 and verse 1. He says that we get a blessing. Reading back in Romans chapter 4, verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? He asks a rhetorical question. Is it only for the people who would ethnically be a part of this uh, Jewish uh, you know, these tribes apart for this people, or is it for everyone? And he goes on and he answers that righteousness is global. It's by faith. And it's always been that way. It's for everyone. David knew that David knew that David said, therefore, let everyone who is godly. He didn't say, let everyone who is a Jew and let everyone who is only of my tribe, let everyone who is only in my kingdom. Now he said, everyone who is godly, this is an invitation to every single person from every single place. There's forgiveness for every sin made available to every single sinner. And that comes from Yahweh through his son. And that is the invitation for us. That is the place that we must begin. If we want to see that we will be happy, that our neighbors will be happy, that our church would be characterized by joy and, and, and rejoicing and that our, our community would be happy all the way out until it stretches to our world. Couple warnings and I'll be done. Psalm 32, God speaking now, not David. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, but don't be like a horse or a mule. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Don't be like a wild animal who has to be forced into this. Even as I preach this with passion, I'm so, uh, you know, I, I want to be careful that it's not me giving you a big tall to-do list and you've got to do these things. Even in talking about repentance, there's so much grace in repentance. There's so much grace in confession. It's not me saying you better go and do this and you got to have an accountability. That, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that this is the way to happiness and it's for everybody. So everybody come one, come all. But that's only going to happen because we start and we do it ourselves, right? We're the people who are, uh, who are uh, characterized by these things. And then everybody else says, man, what is it about that group of people? I need that. I want that. Well, don't be like the person who has to be forced into this. Don't be like a mule. He says, don't be rebellious and strong-headed like a horse and don't be a dumb ass. Those are the words. Don't be like a mule who has to be forced to go in a specific direction or else it won't stay near you. Be tender to God's instruction, his word. It's beautiful. It's here for us. He says he will teach us. He says he will counsel us. And he says he'll do that with his eye on us. We don't we're not outside of God's sight. Friends, if you've been thinking this whole time about something that you need to confess to the Lord, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. 
Not that you need to confess it to me. It's actually good that we're not in the same room right now. I want you to realize that God's eye is on you. God is with you. Right where you are, this is a perfect opportunity to say, God, I realize that I have transgression, I have sin, I have iniquity, and much deceit. And so I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm not going to cover it up. And I'm going to confess that to you. Go to God. His arms are wide open. For some of us, this may be the first time that we do that. In order to help you to think through that, I want you to be thinking about something. Not that I'm going to give you the sinner's prayer, but I want you to pray acknowledging that you are a sinner. Even as we talked about the parallelism, one of the things that I I was going to say a second ago is that David talks about his sin first, and then he talks about the place that he is as a sinner in the, the first and the fourth and the second and the third. But that's neither here nor there at this point. What I want you to do is recognize that you have sinned. You're part of the all. You know what all means in Greek? It means all. You know what all means in Hebrew? It means all. In English, it means all. In Spanish, it means all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God did not leave us there. He sent his son, his only begotten son, who was God in the flesh. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. And in living a perfect life, what he was doing was living in perfect obedience to the standards. He wasn't perverting God's law. He wasn't transgressing and stepping over God's law and saying that he wanted to do his own thing. No, as a substitute in the place of all who believe in your place, Jesus Christ lived perfectly on earth. And then he died, innocent, sinless, but condemned as guilty because you are. If you can acknowledge that, then the hope that we have, friends, is that God did not leave him dead in the grave. As history would tell us, as you know the the rest of the gospel story, or maybe you're hearing it for the first time, God raised him from the dead. And that was his way of saying, there's been payment. That really was an atonement. The check has been cleared. This bankrupt sinner, these bankrupt people, these people who could not pay their own sin debt have now had all of the payment been cleared for them in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ walked the earth again, was seen to as many as 500 people at the same time, and then God took him back. The angels uh, uh, sang as he ascended into heaven where he is right now, and he reigns there, and he actually intercedes on behalf of all who put their faith in him. You know what that means? That means that even when you don't have the words, Jesus Christ prays for you at the right hand of God. That's, 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 that's the kind of stuff that I enjoyed this week. Those are the kinds of things that made me happy this week. It's not the fact that I got another stimulus check or actually didn't get the stimulus check, right? It's not that I got a, a, a good, nice pair of shoes. It's not that I was able to have some amazing food. No, I'm happy. I'm blessed. I'm rejoicing. and I have joy because Jesus Christ intercedes for me from a place of ultimate compassion and empathy. Friends, this is available to all of us. And if again, for the first time you're thinking through these things, I want you to just take a moment. Maybe you can listen to a couple of verses from Psalm 41 or Psalm 51, where David himself did pray 
these uh, in this way. And maybe you would just find it as the encouragement that you need on how to go to him. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me. God. Father, it is our prayer that you would purge us and that you would cleanse us from the inside out. We started out praying for transformation and thinking about that being our great need. Lord, that is what it means to be changed from the inside out. Would you do that? We know that you have always been doing this work, but today when we look out our windows and when we look toward our neighbors, even when we look around our own families and, and, and when we, Lord, we don't even have to get out of bed. When we open our eyes and we look and we see our own thoughts, we realize we need you to purge us and to transform us. God, would you do it? Do it for your glory, God, that we would be praying for deliverance, God, and we would see that the grace is available to us and that we would not be trusting in our own efforts, but trusting in you. Lord, we keep praying and we want to see revival come to our land. God, we have a vision of seeing revival come to the shores, even of Ventura. We see you calling more and more churches and church plants and people here. And you're putting people in uh, places in, in, in city government. You're putting pe places, uh, people into uh, law enforcement and small businesses and all kinds of things and through the education system. But the truth of the matter is, God, it won't be by any other places of prominence. It will be a heart of contrition. Lord, would you break our hearts over our own sin, each of us individually, all of us corporately. Lord, that we would see an ingathering of more and more people who are seeking after life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but know that they can't find it anywhere else. God, would you do this work? We're thankful that as we pray this, we, we feel uh, emboldened to pray prayers like this because we're praying that your will would be done and that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. This is not our desire. These are your desires that you've placed into us. And so, God, get glory for yourself and do what only you can. We pray this by faith in the matchless and the victorious name of Jesus Christ in whom we have all confidence and assurance that our sin is forgiven and that every sin that has ever been committed by any person can be forgiven and that by faith in him alone. Amen.